five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA, searching the world for marketing news that you probably haven't heard yet today. First, let's start with Tom Fishburn. Okay, returning to the office. First off, denial. I'm never going to the office again because they like being able to sit in their yoga pants. I'll quit if they try to make me. Free food, kombucha, chair massages. Still not worth it. Wait, what's going on with the economy? So this denial, anger, bargaining, depression. This is the five stages of grief. So this is the five stages of returning to the office. Okay. What's going on with the economy? Depression. Maybe I better just maybe I better just show my face. <laughs> okay, so the return to the office. From home, tug-of-war continues. Many businesses are getting more insistent with their plans to get staff back in the office more, shifting tactics from offering perks to issuing <laughs> mandates. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are out of work. In a study from A-Team, 53% of tech leaders said the economic downturn would make it easier to require employees to return to the office. A study from Ostash found 57% of employees were content with employees resigning if they didn't want to return employers, okay? If they didn't want to return to the office. It was famously illustrated with Tesla's mem memo in June saying at least 40 hours a week in the office. If you don't show up, we'll assume you've resigned. There's been a hard and soft staff pushback to returning to the office, but more people are now in the office than at any point since the start of the pandemic. In Manhattan, 49% of the workers are in the workplace on, a, on an average weekday, which is expected to increase by 54%. And uh, at the Namoa CEO breakfast, there were all sorts of creative ideas. You know, um, most companies are saying two days a week, and most are saying which days a week that is. Okay. So office occupancy is still half of pre-pandemic levels, and there's widespread experimentation with different strains of hybrid work, trying out the number of days, which days, how teams collaborate, and blurred lines between work and home. Some companies, like Airbnb, have promised that employees can work remotely forever. As J. Jeff Adler, VP at Yardley, put it, we're in the messy, mushy middle. Andrew Mawson, MD of AWA, described returning to the office this way. People tried coming into the office, and when they got there, they found they were, all they were doing was being on Zoom calls. You know, and the biggest problem, I think, for most people is the commute. Now, I have a wonderful commute. It was about 50 degrees this morning, a little chilly on my motorcycle, and I hop on the motorcycle and I go about five minutes, which is why I can ride it until almost New Year's, you know, usually between Christmas. And lately, it's been between Christmas and New Year's before we get really get a big snow. And they start salting the roads. Okay, back to the office from a year ago. We've reopened the office. Why does everyone want to keep working from home? Because it's torture. But, you know, if I had an hour commute, some people do. Um, some people have more than that down in Chicago. I would say I would be reluctant to want to 
work from home. Although I do like listening to podcasts. I always like that when I had my 40 minute or half an hour commute to downtown Milwaukee when I was at the ad agency. Anyway, now let's go right over to the purpose of purpose. Okay, this is from Mark Ritson, and uh, he's got long articles, so we're not going to try and fill in with fun news. We got some for tomorrow. Um, the purpose of purpose is purpose. Okay, brands take note, and of course, everyone's not by now heard the news that the 83-year-old founder of Patagonia is relinquishing his ownership of his company to a trust, and according to Ritson. Not only is it going to cost him $2.6 billion net in net worth, but he'll also have to pay tax as a result of his generous donation. That seems a little dopey. <laughs> I know that if you give more than 50% of your income in a year, you end up with, uh, you end up with uh, tax liabilities. But it seems like it would seem like there would be a way to do this in an orderly fashion. You should not have to pay taxes for giving away $2.6 in my opinion. Right? In my opinion. Okay? But, uh, Chunyard, I don't know how to pronounce his name, says he understands one of the central pre precepts of purpose. That it must cost you something to deliver it. If it doesn't cost you anything, then have you really given anything? to purpose and so most of you know this story right it's been in the news like bombarding my news feed of all the sites but what you probably don't know is Stanley Tam's story so let's go over and watch that just for a little bit and we'll give you a little bit of of Stanley here's Stanley Tam one of my very first clients when I went out on my own I think maybe the first one something he said we'll incorporate your little business We'll issue stock, and then we'll establish a nonprofit religious foundation, and we'll give 51% of the stock to the foundation. So that's what we did. Well, United States Plastic Corporation is a uh, industrial distributor of plastic products that are used in industry and factories and commercially. And uh, we distribute product uh, across the United States, primarily the 48 continental states of the United States. Last year, 140-some thousand decisions were made as a result of the evangelism from the teams that are supported by United States Plastic Corporation. We, uh, we produce about $4 million a year, and uh, I total up from the beginning, and it comes to about $120 million that uh, the company has given for the ministry of the Lord. I love Stanley's clear grasp on eternity. And I think that he looks at his giving and saving and living expenses through that lens. And so every time he goes to make a decision, it's how does this impact eternity? Okay, so uh, Stanley is one of my heroes, I have to say. Um, I was working with about six safety companies at the same time, something or in, in pretty close vicinity. And I was doing some, some creative work assessing their, their catalog conventions for 
um, the safety company owned by Jensen Tool, and I never can remember the name of that one. Uh, I remember Jensen Tool out in Arizona. And um, in the process of looking at competitors, because at the time everyone wanted to look like Lab Safety, uh, because Lab Safety had grown fantastically by making the safety buying process simpler and more more like a consumer catalog. In fact, to be honest, more like a woman's consumer catalog because uh, a woman sort of took over the business from her dad and said, why does it have to look so technical and, you know, mechanical? And so uh, they grew massively by having an attractive catalog and by mailing like crazy. Uh, we actually did some work for them. Uh, we worked on their data on their database um, structure and uh, they had 160 some tables it was designed by one of the professors at the University of Wisconsin uh, on a uh, on a uh, AS 400 and and with an AS 400 it's easier to add a new table than it is to add a new field but when you try to reconcile all that and pull it all together it's a it's a terrible nightmare mess and so uh, so everybody at the time wanted to look like lab safety. And I actually told Jensen Tool that since they had actual real safety experts, they might have wanted to put a couple of those safety expert pictures and invite people to call if they had genuine safety uh, puzzles, some, you know, compliance issues and, and, uh, or serious safety concerns about their employees. And their business grew. And uh, I worked with Lions. I worked with um, I worked with Connie. Uh, I worked with and then I but I got to Stanley's catalog as a he had a safety catalog, and um, I wrote to him. I said I don't think I can work for another safety company at the time, but your catalog is so ugly. I've never seen one so ugly as yours. And so he wrote me back or he called me on the phone and he said. Well, what do you mean, John? And I said, well, you use color not to illustrate your items, but to make it look like you decided you needed to make it colorful, <laughs> like, you know, ba banner bars for categories of products and stuff. And he said, well, ask your client, your safety clients, if, if you could help me with my safety, with my plastic company. It's not a, competitively a safety company. So you just work on that one. And, uh, you know, and everybody was fine with it. They, they all got a kind of a kick out of Stanley because he did have an ugly catalog. And so we did some work and, uh, you know, I gave him some ideas. He had a, he had a picture of a, of a movie projector, like a, an old 16 millimeter movie projector. And below it, it advertised a, a movie that you could, you could, I think you could rent uh, he would send it to you, or you could buy it for your church or something. And it told his story, sort of like what we've been showing. And I said, Stanley, you know, you're not selling movie projectors really, are you? No, no, no. We just want people to know that it's available, that they can hear my testimony that way. And I said, well, first of all, you know, we're now in the age of video. You could at least put it a VHS. Do you think that'd be good, John? I said, yes. Okay. But really, what you should really be talking about is your mission. Don't talk about, you know, talk about your purpose. And so the next issue of his catalog, instead of a picture of a movie projector, he had a picture 
on the cover, front cover, I think, of a little church in Korea that the funds from his company, and I'll post an article on Stanley uh, on WDMA.org that you can get after the show. And at that time, he had given $140 million. That was about 2016. They figured $140 million. You know, and this is just a little company in Lima, Ohio. This is not a Patagonia by any means, but just consistently. And uh, but he put a picture of a little church in Korea and lots of little kids around the church and, and then said, you know, our profits from our company every year go to building little churches. And he went from from uh, South Korea to India, a lot in India. And uh, built thousands and thousands of little churches for for communities. And uh, so a couple of months went by and my list broker, uh, Jerry Kraft, came into my office and he said, I got some list ideas for you. Um, But he said, I wondered what you thought of this of this company. Have you heard of this company? U.S. Plastics. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. And he pulled out the edition with the with the church on the cover. And I said, and he said, well, what do you think of that? What do you think of being so overtly evangelistic? He said, I know you're kind of overtly evangelistic. I used to give away a tract, which is my testimony, as my business card. People wanted my business card, I give them my tract. I might have to start that up again. Maybe I should. I, I think I still have the artwork around somewhere. It, it was tricky to produce it. I bought a special stapler. It was about, well, you can't see. But it was about two feet long so that I could staple the interior saddle stitch of my little booklet. And I used to make them up by myself, by hand. Anyway, so Stanley, so he pulls the thing out. And I said, well, what do you think of it? You know, Jerry was Jewish. And I knew he was Jewish. We had talks about that. And he said, well, he said, I'm kind of okay with it. I'd rather give to a company. I mean, I'd rather buy from a company that believes in something. And believes maybe in eternal judgment, uh, you know, if they don't treat you fairly, I'm okay with that. I thought that was really something. That was a really, really good answer from Jerry, my Jewish list broker. And so, anyway, you probably haven't heard about Stanley, and uh, probably you should. But Stanley actually figured out a way to give half the stock, or 51%, and eventually he gave 100% of the stock. But because he had issued the stock and the way he structured it he didn't have didn't seem like he had tax implications uh, for the uh, for the gifting of the company so I don't I don't know if Patagonia did it did it the right way surely could afford a uh, an attorney so that's the so the question for today back to back to Ritson is what do you think about that he said that marketers have developed their own special strain of purpose in recent years, one that does not, in fact, require purpose to cost them anything at all. You know, they talk about planting trees or something else. And, you know, but but now with the recession looming uh, and people's buying purposes are changing. Well, also, here you go. In 2020, a much-quoted survey, Zeno told us 94% of global customers said it was important that companies they engaged with had a strong purpose. Okay. 
A year later, Havas told us that 64% of the world's population preferred to buy companies with a reputation for having a purpose. Razorfish said 82% of consumers said they, that they buy and stand from brands that stand for a greater mission or purpose. It's easy to see why marketers folk, focus so heavily on purpose because everybody says it's important. Now, according, but according to Mark, this is really perceptive, most of the data used in these studies is spoken data. So they just ask you. They don't even ask you for examples, which lays itself open to the intention action gap, which may be summarized by the proverb, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> so you can say you're all in on purpose, but maybe you buy the generic crackers at the Piggly Wiggly, <laughs> which is what I do. I just love those craven crackers at the Piggly Wiggly. They're better than Triscuits. And Nabisco's going off on other, you know, they have rainbow packages. And that's fine if you're into rainbow, buy them Nabisco. But I'm just into the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> And Mr. Fox, who's the owner, but it's all employee-owned. So what people say they will do and what they actually do is quite different, okay? But people are planning to make cutbacks, and I can't read this. This was too small. I tried to make it bigger, but I couldn't. But Kantar was already showing a significant portion of the market was spoken rather than derived data, switching to lower price options, okay? So they're buying the, they're buying the generic crackers at the Piggly Wiggly. Purpose can be an effective positioning strategy, but it has been overplayed by many marketers who want to look cool and ride their purpose wagon to the next big job. Unilever is having a torrid time because it pinned its corporate fortunes on brand purpose. So it worked really well with Dove, you know, that and, and what was interesting is, you know, Dove creams your skin while you wash. That's from David Ogilvy from back when he was running his, his agency. Um, but their campaign for real beauty, you know, it, it essentially said, you know, the, the foundation of beauty is good skin and stuff, and Dove, does, Dove is better for your skin. And I think that was a sound strategy, just like David Ogilvy screams your skin while you wash. Um, and, but, you know, then they applied it to, to Hellman's mayonnaise and saying that they were saving the, the mountain of waste in food. But, of course, most of that food is pre-consumer you know, it, it never gets there. Uh, that 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 expire expiration date is something that really I think contributes to waste more than it helps anybody. But anyway, if Unilever lowered its rose-tinted glasses and looked properly at Hellman's, it could figure out that creating meals from leftovers using this magical white stuff is a better a, is a better strategy for a recession than helping to reduce the world's food mountain. You know, and I'm not, I probably buy the generic mayonnaise because I figured out mayonnaise has like three ingredients. I think it's egg whites and vinegar and oil or something like that. It's vinegar and oil plus egg whites. So the generic, I can't tell the difference. Anyway. So now some of these companies are pushing back. Mark Pritchard's uh, message earlier this year, and he was in, he had something to do with the Gillette debacle, you know. And I was, you know, both Gillette and Nike, I think, have overplayed that. You know, they used to be about about achievement, you know, and excellence in sports and 
come from behind victories and all the inspirational stuff that that makes sports so much fun to to uh, enjoy. And then they got into, you know, men need to be more woke or something. I didn't buy Gillette anyway. So even when successfully adopted, uh, purpose should if you want to grow, then grow, and you can contribute to purpose. But if you want purpose, then it might cost you something. Purpose is not usually the path to greater profits and growth. That wasn't Stanley's method. He wanted to reach the world for Christ, and he just told people what he was doing with the money, and he was doing it anyway. And um, the purpose of purpose is purpose. You deliver it because you believe it. And you deliver it even when it costs you something, everything, even your whole company. Right. And I just hope, you know, I hope Patagonia helps the sheep farmers in New Zealand and places like that, or in America. We have plenty of sheep farmers that can't even get rid of their wool. That would be a great, it's such a great waste. That would be a great mission for Patagonia. Just help the sheep farmers, and that will help everyone. Get rid of the plastic, the pile of plastic being made into sportswear. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Call me. You know, I'll give you 15 minutes. No charge. Consulting. Ask me your question. I'll see what I can do. Bye-bye.